One guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love is a man whose roots are steeped in hospital, community and local radio. He set up Apple AM in Taunton, which is still in existence, was involved in the setup of Swansea Sound in 1974, County Sound, Radio 210 in Reading, The Wave and, of course, where he resides now at GTFM. Drive Time presenter on The Wave and chairman of Radio Glamorgan, Jamie Pritchard, said of my guest... I hold Terry in high regard. He has been a phenomenal help during my career, very supportive. Gave me harsh but well-needed words at times, but overall a legend in radio. He pushed me in terms of not only on the air, but behind the scenes too. We're talking about Terry Mann, and we'll hear from him after his first choice from Nat King Cole. Let there be you. Let there be me. Let there be oysters. Under the sea. Terry Mann, a very warm welcome to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. That's a lovely way to start, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's sort of where I started, really, because that kind of music was around when I was when I was little, before pop was invented, really. It's timeless, isn't it? Nat King Cole, George Shearing on the piano, just beautiful, beautiful. And actually, it still works today. People go, oh, what's that? It's really nice. Yeah. And it just, just doesn't matter that it's like 50 or 60 years ago. It's just fantastic one of those things that stands the test of time yeah absolutely did you have uh, music growing up at home my dad was in the salvation army choir and he was uh, used to play cornet years ago as well before my day actually i never heard him do that but i heard him sing and um so yes music was around my mum was very musical as well she just uh, loved all sorts of music pop music and stuff my dad was a bit more straight list i remember saying when cliff richard came on the telly first i was probably about five, six. I remember him mumbling, if only he'd open his mouth, he'd be good. Because <laughs> <laughs> pop, pop people just didn't know how to sing. No, no. And, uh, you know, but, I mean, he said he's got a nice voice, but he needs to open his mouth more. <laughs> Your uh, next choice is from an English harmony beat band from Birmingham, The Fortunes. Tell us about Caroline. Well, the significance of this is it was the uh, theme tune to the pirate radio station, Radio Caroline, which uh, started, I remember it started at Easter 1964. And I remember that because um, I was already well into the idea of radio and stuff like that, listening to shortwave radio. I'd inherited the radio from the front room when my parents got a telly, because tellies were enormous then with little yeah. screens. And there wasn't room for a great big old <laughs> radio and the telly in the same room. So I inherited the radio and I was hooked. And I came down to tea... I think I'd built a little radio studio, too, about then. How old would I have been? About 12. And so, I, you know, I came down to tea on... I, now, was it the Saturday or the Sunday uh, on Easter, on 1964? I don't know. Anyway, on the telly was this boat with this enormous aerial on it and the newsreader, Richard Baker, whoever it was at the time, going on about this pirate radio station that had launched. And, and on the pictures were, I think, people like Simon D. I think he was the first uh, presenter mm. on it. And these people were, you know, young people. These people were, if I had an older brother, they'd be that age. Yeah. And, and I thought, hey, this, this, is, this looks far less formal than we're used to hearing on the BBC or whatever. And the nearest thing we had to pop radio in those days was Radio Luxembourg. I mean, thank goodness for that, because, I mean, no-one else played pop music at all. So we had to listen to that at night, uh, really. I thought, I must try with my radio to listen to Radio Caroline. And I was in Somerset. Uh, you, so you weren't supposed to hear it, really, but, you know, that didn't bother me at all. No. And I stuck a great big, long copper wire aerial over my dad's vegetable patch <laughs> and tuned in. And, and I was absolutely hooked, because the informal style, it's the, it's the style of today. You know, it's ad-lib radio. Yeah. And... Um, the style of it was just so wonderful. And the music it was playing was just music you didn't hear. These were pop records, but you didn't hear pop records on the BBC. You just got them on sponsored programmes in Radio Luxembourg in the night, when if they were on the Decca record hour, you got to listen to Decca releases, you know, and they fade them out after about two minutes. So it was like an advert, really, at <laughs> the radio station. And this was just real young people my age, well, my older brother's age, if I'd had an older brother, playing me songs and telling me why they were great. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Caroline, yeah, yeah, yeah. Caroline. 
So listening to Radio Caroline with, with your aerial over your dad's vegetable patch, was that where the love for interest, the love and interest in radio came from? Yeah, really. It was the communication that, that got me. I mean, Johnny Walker used to be on, on Radio Caroline in the night, and he would talk to people who were parked along the shore at Frinton, flashing their headlights at him. He'd have conversations with them, and it was one flash for yes, two flashes for no, or something, whatever like that. Mm. And you thought, well, how could a person sitting on a boat looking through a porthole possibly have a conversation? But somehow he managed to find out who they were, <laughs> who they were with, you know, because it, it was people, you know, courting couples, yeah. parked along the <laughs> coast kind of thing. Then he had his... Um, his mum ran his fan club from Solihull, I remember. If you wanted to officially, you know, have a bit of a kiss in the car, you had to have a Johnny Walker kiss in the car licence, <laughs> which looked like a road fund licence. And mum printed them and put, sent them out. So people used to write in and say, well, I've got my kiss in the car licence, you know, whatever. But, you know, this was real communication without a phone. This was just amazing. I just love the informality and the, the intimacy of it, really. It was just... Fantastic. And we'd never heard anything like it on, on broadcasting before. And I remember I used to pipe it around the house during the day because it was a complete, complete nutcase. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid it hasn't changed. And my mum always used to ask about the boys on the boat when it was bad weather. Yeah. You know, how are the boys on yeah. the boat? <laughs> well, they haven't said much in the last half an hour. I think they're probably being ill. You know, <laughs> and it's playing a lot of records. But I know it was the communication, I think. And I, I already loved the idea of it, but this gave me the kind of reality of it and and uh, local radio has always been my interest because uh, you know it's, it, you can actually do something useful with that mm. um, as we're trying to do now actually with what's going on and did you have you, you mentioned johnny walker were there broadcasting heroes that you had well he's one of them yeah Johnny Walker is one of very few broadcasters who could play records I absolutely hate the sound of uh, and still make me listen to them because he says they're good. Yeah. In, in fact, in those days, he loved soul music very much. And he used to play uh, artists like the Bar Kays and Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett, um, Sam and Dave, all those. And nobody had heard of those at all uh, over here. I mean, they just didn't get any airplay. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he had a real communication skill, I think. And, of course, he was the brave lad who broke the Marine Offences Act when the pirates were closed down. Mm. He didn't close down, and he played We Shall Overcome by Joan Baez as the midnight struck, you know, and they, they all became illegal. And uh, it was great. I loved it. I, as a teenager, you know. He's always been like that, though. He, he in, in his early days at Radio 1, he wasn't a big fan of, of playlists. No, and he, he just played what he wanted to play. Well, it took years for them to get him because he came back from Radio Caroline and he just wouldn't work for Radio 1 for a no. while. Tell me about your third choice, the first of two songs on your list from The Seekers. In, in the 60s, it, Radio Caroline and Radio London, the other ship uh, that was there, was, where they had about 16 million listeners between them in, just in the southeast of England. So they had enormous power over music. And they used to play new bands that no one had heard of, where no one else did that. BBC didn't do that. And, of course, you had to be you know, pretty well up the playlist to, to get on the sponsored shows on Radio Luxembourg. So new music, like music from the Seekers, who'd uh, come over from Australia on a 10-week ticket. They'd played their way on a boat, so that, that's what they had paid for their carriage. And they were going to go back after 10 weeks, but they had a couple of good showbiz connections, and they ended up on the Palladium and all sorts of stuff. I mean, they ended up working on TV almost as soon as they got there. Very, very professional musicians, very clean-cut, very sort of middle-class, I suppose, if you like, and utterly unlike the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. I mean, I loved all of them, too, but I was particularly taken by the, the real musical skill of this this group who broke all the molds because they weren't you know grungy at all they, they were very clean cut wore suits judith durham who's a lead singer i had a bit of a crush on that I must hmm. say, uh, a bit because she sang with such spirit and what i loved uh, because you know my dad's background salvation army and everything when she sang a spiritual song she really gave it some welly she absolutely believed what she was singing i just loved their energy and they were given a, a break on radio caroline i'll never find another you was a song that was made they couldn't get it played anywhere caroline played it they were number one rest was history hey there georgie girl there's another georgie deep inside i mentioned at the start terry of your life being steeped in radio and it's a heck of a cv how did you first get involved with hospital radio i set one up 
when I was about 15, I'd, I'd built a studio like years before and found out I had quite a strong heart because I'd electrocuted myself several times <laughs> doing that. You know, they didn't teach you how to build radio studios no, on no. Blue Peter, which was my favourite programme at the time. I could make anything with a squeezy bottle or <laughs> an old box. But yeah, so I'd built this thing and it was piping you know, music and, and me around my house. And uh, not that I had any ego or anything. And <laughs> my mates joined in. So I had a couple of mates. I had a particular friend, my best friend from school. Uh, and I've known him since we were about four at infant school, Bob. He he was, had a similar interest, and he built a, a studio at his house, which is at the other end of the town. We're all revved up, no place to go, really. And then one of our number, Tim, he was a Motown fan, Tim, he went to a technical college near my house at sixth form time. We, we sort of did sixth form stuff. Bob and I were both at a grammar school, although I <laughs> had, to, had to fight my way to get to it. <laughs> he was just sailed through his 11 plus, you know, so we, we'd split up for a while, but he, I saw him socially. Anyway, so we had the studio, and, and uh, our friend Tim came back one day from, uh, from the, the college and said uh, that we've got a common room there and, and we've got no music. Why don't we record a programme in our studio here and take it over there and play it, you know, like at lunchtime? And we did that. So we did this sort of pop, you know, radio show, which was broadcast by default by sort of delayed action through a tape the following day at the thing. And we could kind of cut our teeth on that. And then my dad was in hospital for a long time. In Taunton, the hospital was Musgrove Park Hospital that was built by the Americans as a temporary hospital in the <laughs> war. And, of course, you know, we're talking late 60s. Yeah. It was still going strong. I mean, you no know, Nissan huts, you know, with, with, uh, with people in them. And he was stuck in there. It was only up the road, literally up the road from where we lived. And he was stuck in there for an entire summer because well, he, had a, he was you know, death's door for a while. I went in to visit him, and he said, oh, he said, these headphones, they're just rubbish. And he, and he put these headphones on me, and all it was was crackling noises. On one channel, I could hear two stations blurred together. And on the other channel, all I could hear was lightning static, you know, that you get in the summer. Yeah. And a vague, somebody chatting way in the distance underneath all the crashing. I thought this is dreadful. So I sort of followed the wires back to where the amplifiers were and so took, took note and I noticed that they had a sort of name on them, like a brand name. So I wrote to the hospital administrator, uh, you know, this 15-year-old boy, you know, uh, <laughs> saying it's, it's disgraceful that people are in your hospital and you seem to be hiring this equipment from a company that doesn't, you know, mend it. I mean, it's just awful. You can't listen to either of the channels. Oh, and by the way, uh, I've got a studio and I'd like to do a hospital request show once a week. <laughs> they went, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, you've got a socket on the front of your amplifier, I noticed, where, where the, um, someone used to do a League of Friends, used to do a commentary from Somerset yeah. Cricket Club. So they used to plug in and blank out Radio 4. So I thought, well, we could do that. We could blank out. And we started with a one-hour request show on a Saturday morning at 11, which recorded the night before. We went round the wards, picked up all the requests. And, and it was, you know, everything from Bless This House by Harry Seacombe to, you know, the Rolling Stones. So, I mean, it was an amazingly eclectic yeah. program. You just never knew what was going to be next. We recorded it on the Friday night. And then I used to carry my reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder up the road in all weathers, take it into the the porter's lodge, which is where the uh, the amplifier was, and plug it in precisely after the pips at 11 o'clock on Radio 4 and play this request show. And that's where we started, really. It went on to be eventually a studio in the hospital. They gave us an old ambulance to put the studio in. When I moved away to work for the BBC in Bristol, then we moved the boys and the programme up there. Then it became somewhere capable of live broadcasting and the rest is sort of history really i mean it's still going it's called apple fm now it's gone through various life forms as a hospital radio station and now it's on the radio on fm so uh, i'm rather i'm rather proud of that uh, you we started see, it in 69 i think 1969 when we started that that's wonderful i was <laughs> 50 years old We'll work our way through your CV, and, and Apple FM was on the top of the list. But first off, British soul band for your next choice, Terry the Foundations. Tell me about Build Me Up Buttercup. Well, this is the song that got me on the BBC when I was a kid, around the time I was building the hospital radio, really, because it, they were doing an experiment into... They hadn't got local radio in those days at all. I think it had just started in Leicester as, like, a, um, an experiment. But in the southwest of England, th th there wasn't anything, and... Um, the BBC in Bristol decided to do something called Weekend West, which was, I think, eight weekends in a row. 
they blanked out FM, Radio 4, because hardly anyone listened to FM in those days, so these opted out and left Radio 4 on medium wave and did this like a local radio programme, I suppose, over the slightly larger area from Bristol down to Taunton and Somerset, all of that. And they had a request pro. They had a, quite a mixed format of programmes on there, uh, but I remember they had a request programme on a Saturday morning, and they had a dear old announcer. I can remember his name. is Tony Raymond. I mean, he wasn't old then. He was sort of middle-aged, I suppose. But he obviously hadn't you know, had any idea of how you um, pronounce any, anything at all. Uh, but he was lovely, you know. <laughs> anyway, so he announced this as build me, build me a buttercup, I think. LAUGHTER uh, and immediately, I mean, was that a big error, really? And anyway, I was immediately writing, writing to them in a very friendly way, saying, look, you know, if you, uh, I think he's great. I love the programme. I love the station. It's a great idea. We ought to have local radio. And if, if we do, I'd love to be on it. You know, can you get somebody to tell him how to pronounce the, the songs? Because it's a bit of a giveaway. Anyway, when I got home from school about the middle of the following week, my mum was going, the BBC have been on the phone. I mean, that was a big, that was in those days, a big deal. Yeah. And I said, come on. She said, yeah, yeah, you wrote to them. You wrote them, didn't you? And they've, they've replied. I rang up the, the, rang up the person who, uh, who'd left the message, which is a guy called Bill Salisbury, who was the producer of the Request Show, and later my boss at Radio Bristol a few years later. He was the programme organiser there. But anyway, he said, tell you what, Terry, he said, um, Tony, he was doing the show, he said he wants some help. Come up and help him do it this week. Can you come up to Bristol? And I, well, I was about 15 or something, but I, I thought, yeah, I can do that. So me and my mates got on the train in a big adventure, yeah. broadcasting house, White Ladies Road, you know, home of Johnny Morris and <laughs> all the big programmes of the day. And we rocked up there and I, I co-presented it with him. And he was a lovely, lovely man. And he let me introduce the kind of pop records that were in the, in the programme. So this record got me in. So build me up, build me up, don't break my heart. Your next choice, Terry, is a pop classic from The Walrus of Love. You a big fan of Barry White? <laughs> Barry White, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that was a, a different point in my life entirely, that uh, all that whole era, mid-70s, because we were involved in launching Swansea Sound, the first local radio station in, in Wales, actually. Nobody knew how to do pop music, local radio in those days. We had a good guess, and we managed to do it quite well, actually. It was a heck of a challenge. I'd gone to work for the BBC, funnily enough, for Bill Salisbury, as I left school, been up there for two or three years at Radio Bristol. And then my boss there, who was the light entertainment producer, as they called him, got the gig as programme controller at, uh, at Swansea Sound. And, he's, and I was already programming his music for him because he used to let me pick the new records because he didn't have a clue or wasn't that interested, really. So he said, look, he said, I'm going there. Do you want to come as well? And you can be my like, head of music. And I was, tw- I was 22, right? So that wasn't, I was going to turn that down. So I ended, up, I ended up in Wales. I nearly turned round when I was going for my interview when I saw the sign Winarloith, <laughs> which for an English bloke is like... I mean, my auntie comes from Wales and I grew up with her. She, she um, you know, came from Upper Boat, so I had some idea. Like Pontypridd has got two Ds at yeah. the end, you know, so it's a TH sound. So I knew a few things, but Winarloith nearly made me turn back. But I'm glad I didn't. Because I met some great people and we just kind of broke the mould. And it was the first radio station I'd worked for, Swansea Sound, which had lots and lots, like unimaginable numbers of listeners. Because I'd worked for BBC Local Radio before, which is lovely and a great training ground. But it was only on FM back in the days when nobody listened to FM, really. They all listened to medium wave. And it took the sort of power crisis in the 1972, I think, to get people to tune in to find out which, which areas of the cities were going to be blanked out by power cuts. And so we did a bit of an audience then. But when we switched Swansea Sound on, we just couldn't believe how many people were listening. And it was the era of uh, Philadelphia music, sort of black soul music from yeah. the States. And people like Johnny Bristol had big hits. And we were a real shock when we launched because... The Independent Broadcasting Authority, who were the, you know, the, the Ofcom of those days, if you like, they used to own the transmitters in those days. You just rented them like a franchise. And before you came on with your radio station, they did a test transmission, which was light classical music. <laughs> and this had been on for months, right? right. 
So then we launched Swansea, Swansea Sound and, you know, just hit the airwaves with, with stuff like Barry White. And it was like one hell of a shock. It was a good <laughs> shock because people thought it was going to be a bit nice and a bit kind yeah. of, you know, and then just boom, out comes people like Big Barry. And uh, this song means a lot to me because uh, Barry White, huge fan of Barry White was uh, was my late wife Doreen who I met at Swansea Sound yeah. a, a Welsh lady from uh, from Swansea and um, she frequented what we called the black corner in the uh, presenters room because she loved uh, black soul music and so did our breakfast presenter Chris Harper and they desk shared because he was on like really early in the morning and she yeah. came in to do the afternoon show they both went to see Barry White there's a BBC film of uh, of him performing which they're in you know as members of the audience at the royal albert hall when he, he came over 75 i think so this song and you know the whole barry white repertoire and gene page and his orchestra mean a lot to me Broadcasting from the John Wills Studio at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff, we are Radio Glamorgan. John Lennon and Imagine. I like thought-provoking songs, as uh, you'll find out if you haven't already found out. You certainly will with some of the other choices coming up. And that one stimulates all sorts of memories for me. I thought the sentiment of it was interesting. Imagine there's nothing to kill or die for. You know, they, they were into peace, uh, him and his missus. And I approve of that. I didn't, didn't like entirely approve of all the lyrics in it, but it wasn't up to me to approve of them. It was just a hell of a song. It's bittersweet, really, because I remember... I was at a station called CBC, a radio station. Oh, long since I remember gone. CBC. I was sent with a posse of experts from London to sort of fix it because it had gone off a slightly wrong a tangent when it launched. It uh, was hemorrhaging money and didn't. Um, well, it wasn't going to last long actually. Had it had somebody not fixed it, so I was sent down to quietly fix it, <laughs> and I not long turned up when um, when he, uh, John Lennon was shot. Uh, so we're, we're talking, you know, 1980-ish now. Yeah, December 80, yeah. December 80, and that was just... I just remember that. You, there are moments that you remember where you were at the time, and, and that I was there at the time. It's like when John Kennedy was shot. I was a schoolboy. I mean, I, I came home from school. All the TV was blanked out. There was just caption on, you know, saying mm. President Kennedy had been, been assassinated. I didn't even know what that was. And my parents explained it to me. And... I, you just remember some of those things. So, I, my experience at uh, CBC was mixed. Uh, we managed to fix it, I gave it over to a new group who came in to own it, and it turned into Red Dragon. Rest is history, enormously successful station. Enjoyed my time there, but I always remember, because of Lennon, that I was at CBC at the time. I think for me, the first big name where you remember where you are or what you were doing was when Elvis died. Oh, right. Yes, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I was already at Brighton when Elvis died. I was born in 66, so I would have been 10 and a bit, you know, so I don't think there was anything before. Certainly Kennedy was before my time. You've helped create Swansea Sound, met Doreen there. How did the move to Reading come about? Were you approached by Radio 210? Doreen and I met at Swansea Sound. We, we split up professionally, although we, we kept in touch. When she went to run the AA in London, she went to run something called AA Roadwatch, right. which was the early traffic broadcasters. They won LBC, and they were looking for an experienced broadcaster. So she went off and did that, which is an utterly different thing from playing records on the radio. And I went back to the BBC, local radio, in Brighton. So I was in Brighton, she was in London. We used to see each other at weekends and, and stuff. Then I went to work for somewhere in London, which was the National Broadcasting School that was set up with spare profit money from Capital Radio. Mm -hmm. Well, I say spare profit money. It was money that was raked off them by uh, <laughs> the IBA at the time because they're making far too much money. <laughs> Take some of it away and do something useful with it. So they started a, a radio school. And uh, that was great because they stuck it in at 14 Greek Street in the middle of Soho. And uh, that, that was a, an interesting experience for the students. They learned more about life than they did about radio there, I think. Uh, you know, it did, it did make you blush at times. But um, it was an interesting life experience, you know, life-enhancing experience. And while I was there, I worked with a guy called John Wellington, who, who'd uh, set up a station called Essex Radio. It was really quite well known for, for setting up new commercial stations that were really quite good. And we used to talk about music formats and lots of boring, boring 
backroom stuff. But we used to, you know, enjoy, enjoy it. Anyway, he knew I was looking for my first program controller job. And he was offered one by a station that was not doing terribly well. Not doing terribly well would be fair to say. I think at that time, Radio 210 in Reading had launched in about 76, just after Swansea Sound. It initially had quite well-known presenters on it, like Steve Wright, Mike Reed, and people like that. And it had done really well. It was quite a small local radio station, just in Reading, really, and surrounding areas. But anyway, it had kind of lost its way a bit. And the managing director of it at the time, called Tony Stoller, who was a well-known face in the industry for many years, he was looking for a programme controller to come and sort it out. And I went to see him at a curry house in Paddington, because I had my lunch hour. <laughs> and uh, luckily, I'd listened to his station that morning. Well, actually, not, not by coincidence. I made a point of listening to it. And it was pretty relaxed, so should we say, in its format. In fact, the presenter had missed the 8 o'clock news. He just, <laughs> he, just he, put a, he put a record on it at one minute to eight. I thought, why is he doing that? It's one minute to eight. And it played to two and a half minutes past eight. And the news was three minutes in those days from yeah. my own. <laughs> and then suddenly the record disappeared. And the end of Douglas Cameron reading the network news bulletin <laughs> came on, followed by a very nervous local news presenter who yeah. obviously wanted to apologise but was told not to draw, draw any attention to the fact. Anyway, all this happened the morning mm. of my interview. So I said, by the way, Tony, did you hear what happened at 8 o'clock this morning? He said, no. What happened? I, so I told him. And he said, oh, God. He said, look, can you come and fix it? Mm. <laughs> So I, mean, I, got, I got the job by knowing more about his own station than him, he did. actually. Join <laughs> uh, and I were by then living together. We, um, we, were you married, married then? We might have been married by then. Um, we, we, anyway, moved down to Reading in 83, went in on 25% reach, which in those days was bad. It's pretty good today, but in those days was bad because LBC had 26 and they talked all day. So if you couldn't do better than LBC, <laughs> when you could allowed to play records, no. you, you, you know. Duh. So anyway, I, I went in on 26%, 25% reach in a secret radar that Tony wouldn't publish. And, and then I left on 42 a few years later, so I was quite pleased on that. We were market leader, we knocked capital off the air in Reading, which is pretty good. Yeah. So in that experience, which was immensely challenging for all sorts of reasons, we had the opportunity to open a new transmitter. We, we were offered a medium wave and an FM transmitter that would increase our signal no end over towards Basingstoke and Andover and Newbury, places that we couldn't be heard very well, uh, couldn't be heard in Andover at all. Um, and we said, we just want the FM frequency, please, because I remember they wanted us to pay £100,000 for the FM station and a quarter of a million pounds for medium wave. <laughs> so we said, we had to pay for it. Well, in fact, we offered to pay for it because the whole industry had stagnated because the IBA couldn't afford to build any more transmitters. Yeah. So we said, look, why can't we pay it and we'll give it to you and you can lease it back to us, you know, a pound a year or something. Yeah. And... Uh, so we said, well, we don't, we don't want to spend a quarter of a million pounds on a medium-wave transmitter, please. We'll go on FM. And they said, you can't go to that. No one listens to FM. Hardly anyone does. And we said, well, we think they do, because we had a signal coming out of a shopping centre in the middle of Reading, which was very, very weak. But people who could hear it liked it. And, and you know, the medium-wave was even worse reception. So we knew people would listen. Anyway, the radio authority, may, or who were they then? The IBA, as they were then, same people, different front door. Mm. They said, right, well, we'll do a study in that case because we don't think FM will work. We think you'll be a commercial disaster. But, you know, we said, well, national radio, what national radio station is only on medium wave? It might be skewing the figures. And they went, oh, Radio 1 because that was only a medium wave in those days. So we said, yeah, we're going to take the hunch. We just want the two kilowatts, lovely clear FM from the top of a TV mast for 100 grand. Thank you very much. So this was the song that launched that transmission. There's a theme running through your career, Terry, and that is helping in the formation of radio stations. Let's go to 1995. Tell me about the wave. Oh, OK. I was going to tell you a bit more about Queen. but I, Well, go on. Um, no, no, no. Go on. Radio Gaga, right? 
great song to launch a radio station. We yeah. thought they were huge at the time, just on Live Aid. We were Dorian and I were really lucky to go and see them when they were to Wembley doing their It's a Kind of Magic tour uh, with special seats provided by Channel Four TV right. because Radio Two and I were taking part in a in a stereo simulcast of the of the concert because TV didn't have stereo but commercial radio did in those days. So they sent these massive satellite dishes around to all of the stations and the engineers, which is just brilliant, watching them trying to build one. <laughs> it was fantastic. And they were like Jodrell Bank size. Anyway, it was all rigged up, and we, we transmitted the, the concert on Channel 4, simulcast on commercial radio all over the country with stereo sound, a big deal. But because of that, programme controllers and their other halves were invited to one of those concerts and it absolutely brilliant it was freddie at the top of his game yeah day oh you know all that what year was this marvelous this was uh 85 so just after just just after live aid yeah yeah it was 85 86 something like that yeah it was. Or whether, um, Live Aid relaunched their career. They'd been slightly in the doldrums for a little while because of different kinds of music coming along and Freddie had been over in Germany doing stuff. You, know, you probably shouldn't. But they got back together for Live Aid and then kind of the rest was history. And then, of course, it took a sad turn later. But we were lucky to see him, you know, at the top of his game. Yeah. Absolutely. OK, so you asked me about... Um, uh, 1995, the launch of The Wave. Well, after uh, Radio 210, I was poached by a station called County Sound. The boss of County Sound rang me up several, just a few weeks before GWR took over <laughs> Radio 210. Right. And nobody knew that was going to happen except the MD, I think, and he wasn't saying anything. So uh, this fellow rang me up and said, look, give, I'll give you a job. I, w- I want to do projects. I want to experiment with small-scale radio stations. And I went, oh, tell me about it. And he said, well, we've got this relay transmitter in a place called Hazelmere in Surrey on the border of Hampshire. A terribly, terribly nice, darling, place. And... Um, uh, it's, we've got a transmitter for like a relay. Why don't we do a local station experiment? So we invented, I invented something called Delta Radio there. And uh, that, was, that was great because it was early days, small-scale station. So that was County Sound. And at County Sound, one of the directors was a guy called Ian. Ian came from Eastern Counties Newspapers, uh, based in Norwich. And they were investing in radio stations. And they decided to buy Swansea Sound from the original owners, who were all local investors, really. Mm. I, I saw him one day. Uh, he'd just come out of a board meeting in Guildford. He said, Terry, he said, you know a bit about Swansea Sound, don't you? And I said, well, I helped launch it, you know, like eight, eight, 20 years ago. And he said, well, how would you like to be managing director of it? Because we're just about to buy it. And you know the patch. And we want to split the frequencies and invent an FM and a medium wave station. And I said, well, haven't they just proposed to do Swansea Sound FM and Midas Gold Medium Wave? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I wouldn't, I'm not doing it then. I never, never run a gold station because, I mean, it's just a dustbin, really, for old records, as far as I could see. There were one or two good ones around, but very, like, Gem AM up in uh, Nottingham. That was brilliant. But most of them were were just uh, an excuse to fill up a frequency when Margaret Thatcher turned turtle on us all one day and said, I see you're on two different wavelengths with the same programme. They neglected to notice they'd stopped us splitting the frequencies for the previous 20 years, various governments. Anyway, we were told to split it or, you know, use it or lose it. So people went around like headless chickens inventing stations and, and gold seemed to be what was on meeting wave. So I said, well, I'd love the job. I said, I'd love the job, actually. Because I know the patch, Mrs. comes from there, it'd be great to move back, all that stuff. But I, I, I really can't be doing with this. And <laughs> they say, what? what are you going to do about it? They've just granted us the license. I said, I'll go around to the radio authority and renegotiate it. <laughs> <laughs> they said, well, if you can, you're welcome. So I turned up, hello, Terry, what, are you, what do you want now? And I, <laughs> I said, I want to renegotiate Swansea Sound's <laughs> license. You see, we're only just bloody giving it back now. And I said, well, no, I, I, you know, I said, Swansea Sound is afraid to put down on its luck. It was market leader, but nobody realised that. It's still leading station in the area. I think its reach was about 28% then. Radio 1 had 26 so it was still slightly ahead. In the old days, the Barry White days, it was 63% reach, and Radio 1 had 49 so there was a fair old margin there. Yeah. And it had gradually, it was a lovely station, lovely people there, but it had kind of gone to sleep, where the rest of the world had got more funky. Uh, Swansea sound had become slightly less funky and a bit more sort of Welshy, as I would put it, in, a, in an affectionate way. <laughs> so I said, well, you don't stand a cat in hell's chance of getting your advertisers and, and national clients back if you just call Swansea Sound, Swansea Sound FM, because nobody 
everybody you know thinks it's credible as a young people's advertising medium because it doesn't have any young people listening to it on the Ray Jar. So they, well, what are you going to do then? I said, well, I just need to invent an identikit pop station, you know, f- for for the youngsters, which took me about ten minutes on one of Dorian's cigarette packets, uh, which is, <laughs> and I and then I said, and I'm going to fix Swansea Sound because that's the one I love, you know, that's the one I helped launch, and I want to give it back its mojo, really. So I invented this split frequency thing, and we did it on the 21st birthday of Swansea Sound with a big hurrah and a party. And we even, we invited Colin, our own program controller, back because 21 years had passed, so we could sort of still be in the same room again. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and it was great. We had a really great time. It was really, really great. And launched this new delinquent station called The Wave. It wasn't that delinquent, but it was a bit funkier than, uh, than Swansea Sound. And the uh, rest is history. And in, in one year, we turned a 28% reach into 26 for Swansea Sound just on medium wave, so yeah. it hardly lost anybody at all. And Wave stole a massive chunk of listeners off Radio 1 and 2, which is what it was designed to do. And I think when we added the two together, we had 42%. Wow. So it had gone from 28 to 42 yeah. in about 15 months. That was, that was cool. <laughs> that was cool. They all thought I was crazy. So that was, that, was, that was even better, proving that they were wrong, really. And does it make you proud when you look back? Ever so proud. Yeah. I'm so proud that it's still there, the wave, under this group ownership that has seen the death knell of stations all around the, the, the country. In fact, I think everything I've launched <laughs> is now either gone and great, is greatest hits radio or, yeah. or heart. I mean, I don't think there's one station left that I've launched up in England that's still going locally as a local station at all. And that's a massive tragedy. So the fact that Wave has survived and the fact that young Jamie, who uh, (laughs) I have helped sort of bash into shape, I'm very (laughs) proud of him. And uh, he's the fact he survived there and he's on on drive time. And and a lot of my buddies from Swansea Sound, you know, who are very dear people there and uh, the fact they've kept their jobs i'm delighted about so uh, so yeah and I, but i'm immensely proud tell me about your eighth choice one of us from american singer journals born i like as i said i, I like thought-provoking songs and this one came from nowhere and got to number one with a straightforward christian message a broad christian message a, if you like a contemporary christian message and i just love the idea the, the the thought that it posed what if god was one of us just on the bus on the way home same as the rest of us how would we react great song yeah 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 what if god was one of us just a Let's talk about community radio, an area of the industry that's growing and growing. How did your involvement with GTFM come about? Well, sort of by accident, really. I was, um, what are we talking now, about 10 years ago, probably about 13 years ago, I was working for the BBC, BBC Wales, helping them interpret radar figures because I was um, like a consultant going around training people. And I'd got some work with BBC Local Radio for a while, and I was there at... um, you know, in Llandaff. And around that time, Andrew, who is the original manager of of GTFM, who put it together, put together a documentary about the... uh, He was a huge Swansea Sound fan, and he'd modelled GTFM on Swansea Sound, on the early days of Swansea Sound, which I know well, of course, Mm. (laughs) because I was there, as Max (laughs) would say. He'd fallen in love with Swansea Sound, Andrew, this is Andrew Jones, when he was about eight or nine, and he he was given a radio for Christmas, and he lived up in Brecon, and on medium wave you could hear Swansea Sound quite well out there, and he just loved it, he just fell in love with it. And years later, when he was a housing officer for Nowith Housing uh, up in uh, Reedvelen, Pontypridd, they had quite a social problems in that that estate, really. And he said, why don't we do a radio station to kind of bring people together? And they went, duh, how do you do that? Of course, he'd studied it, and he said, well, you you have a restricted service license, and Mm. um, you you do that. So there was a a man who'd started a radio station, which was modelled on the radio station I'd started, like, decades before yeah. i suppose and he did a documentary about the early days of swansea sound and he went and interviewed loads of people apart from me not that, that 
mattered that much because actually he did a really good job generally he did a lot of research he went to interview the original managing director he i think he even interviewed colin mason which is you know brilliant brilliant and it was broadcast on swansea sound as well as on uh, gtfm mm-hmm. and i thought this is actually this is pretty good and and i i said well, i i contacted him and uh, and said really how, how good i thought it was he said, you know, what do you do and I, now? And I said, well, I'm you know, working freelance, really. He said, well, do you want to do some bit of a music, music consultancy with us? And that was back in the days when GTFM had money because it was the only community radio station. <laughs> the Welsh Government loved it to bits. <laughs> and although we look at it now and go, whoa, well, those must have been the days, yeah. and grants were available for things, you know, to yeah. develop the station. They just loved the idea. So it was the experiment, remember, GTFM. It came years before any of the others. So, you know, he had, had some resources. So he hired me in to look at his playlist and, and suggest different music and things like that. And then he won some money, Andrew. He got some money from, who is it now? Wells Cooperative Centre, I think, who put seed money into projects that taught people computer skills. Now, remember, Andrew is great at turning anything into a radio opportunity, I mean, any opportunity at all. <laughs> and uh, he got this money, half a couple of million quid, I think, to go off and do these experimental radio stations up in the valleys, you know, and they were going to be associated with, with GTFM. In fact, they were. We, we helped put them together. And one of them has turned out to be on the radio since, you know, after years and years of gestation, if you like. But he went off to set them up, and, and uh, he said, look, will you come in and sort of run GTFM for like three days a week while I'm, um, while I'm doing that? So I did that. It's all very temporary and sort of, yeah, you know. And then he, there was a bit of a fallout with the board. It depends who you talk to, what actually happened. I don't know what happened. That's normally the case. I just, yeah. I just know the chairman <laughs> rang me up and said, oh, Terry, he said, I understand you've sort of run a few radio stations in the past. And I went, mm, yeah, one or two. And he said, well, while we sort ourselves out, because Andrew seems to have gone, can you kind of, you know, run it for a while? Well, when was that? That's about 19, uh, 2007. <laughs> And what is it now? <laughs> 2020. I, I, I'm still temporarily running. <laughs> As a volunteer now, I've you know yeah. I've um, I, I've sort of retired. So I my my oppo is the guy with the salary now. Young young Gavin, yeah. he can only afford one person. So I, I'm now in my retirement, working harder than I've ever worked in my life. And today, before this, this is my light relief after mm. um, putting in an application for digital radio for GTFM, yeah. that had to be in by five o'clock today. I got it in at one minute to five <laughs> because it kept rejecting my, um, my email address. Yeah. And it was just like a nightmare. Anyway, and the irony is that the world has turned full circle because in uh, 1995, I applied for exactly the same broadcasting area in the Welsh Valleys for, uh, for a thing I set up called Valleys Radio. Yeah. And <laughs> here I am again. In, in, the, in the countries of most tr- challenging topography where only an idiot would try and set up a radio station because <laughs> there's a mountain, you know, 100 yards yeah. from your transmitter, there's a mountain that will stop the signal going, you know, beyond the mountain. So you need... So I've put this plan in today for an eight-transmitter network, right, yeah. um, which, which would uh, do digital radio from the, from the border of, uh, of Cardiff up to Merthyr without any gaps, I'm still doing it. I don't know how to put it down. It's crazy. And when uh, when will you hear on that? Oh, well, months and months. Yeah. They, they had about 30 are going today, so they'll, they'll take a few months to work through that one. <laughs> a great track for your ninth choice, and a much underrated single, in my opinion, from the late and much missed George Michael. Yeah, George Michael had the wham. You know, he's the wham boy, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, uh, with, with Mr Ridgely. And... And then he went solo, and then we started hearing his voice, his, well, God-sent voice. Just a, it's just an angel's voice. It's wonderful. I mean, he's a guy with a few challenges, a bit of an idiot at times, yeah. perhaps, allegedly. But what a wonderful voice. And we had Careless Whisper. I mean, we'd had the Wham! hits, and then we had Careless Whisper. And it was like, whoa, listen to that voice. And then the second one after that, another big hit, was Different Corner. And I've chosen this because it's another thought-provoking song. Because it's life. It's all about if we turned a different corner, we never would have met. And if all that there is is this fear of being used, I should go back to being lonely and confused. If I could, we should 
seen a lot of changes in local radio since you became involved. I didn't answer your question earlier, but why community radio? So I will okay. in, that, in, that, in that question. Okay. I, yes, I have. I, I, not for the better. I, the best days, I think, of local radio were late 80s, early 90s in commercial radio. When we were allowed to have sponsorship, we could actually pay the bills. We could make a profit for our shareholders, but we were forced... I, well, I wasn't forced. I loved doing it. But actually, most of my colleagues were forced to actually do a local service, a proper one with proper news and all of that. Those were the days, I think. To be honest, those were the heydays of things like Red Dragon, you know, proper local station, bigger scale, I know. Mm. But we've had to reinvent. I mean, what I'm doing at, um, what my people are doing at, at GTFM, uh, immensely proud of them. What they're doing is basic, straightforward local radio that, we've, that I've been trying to do all my career. I've had to skip, you know, one format to another to do it. I started off at the BBC. They trained me very well. They did local radio. They did great journalism. I worked with people like Kate Aidy and Michael Burke, who were my seniors when I was at Radio Bristol. We had very high-caliber people, so you really did learn from people like that. But hardly anyone was listening because it was on FM and everyone had medium wave. Mm-hmm. So um, Swansea Sound was, was local radio with a turbocharged uh, engine underneath. I mean, I can nev- I'll never forget turning up at the traffic lights at Gowerton, which is not exactly a metropolis, near the studio of Swansea Sound one day in the summer, just after we'd launched it. I was driving a station car, which had logos on the side, Swansea Sound logos, and its school had just come out, and I stopped at the traffic lights at Gowerton, and these, these school kids were singing the station jingle. Oh. And it was like, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> and we did a come and meet the presenters thing at Aberavon Seafront over by Portalbert. And <laughs> our programme controller, Colin, w- had a job with the TA. He was like a lieutenant. What was he? Um, oh, I can't remember what he was now. He'd kill me if he was listening. Um, he was something in the TA. And, he, and, you know, and he was really living proof of, of, of saying that military intelligence is, is a sort of contradiction in terms <laughs> um, because he thought the war ended in 1946 because uh, Doreen was producing a 1940s show and she produced this, the, you know, which was like uh, the memory of people in the Blitz and Swansea yeah. and stuff. And uh, she got to 1945 and she went up to his office and said, what do I do next week, Colin? This was a feature that ran against the BBC chart on Sunday two yeah. time on Swansea Sound. And he said, well, no, it's another show. It's uh, 1946. Um, war ended. Anyway, he, um, he organized this promotion, and we thought nobody would come because he was giving out map references. He said, come and meet you know, the Swansea Sound presenters. And this was Aberavon Seafront. But actually, about 100,000 people turned wow. up. <laughs> this was only a few months after we launched the station. Yeah. And it was just like, whoa. I mean, they were climbing all over the cars, making dents in the roofs and everything. I mean, all very, very good natured. But I mean, that was, I mean, that was fantastic. The fact we could go on the air and we could say something that was happening down the road. I remember we had the local copper used to come in and do his police five. You know, it's like evening all. Come in and help... Um, <laughs> help the local police with their inquiries. And I remember he was <laughs> on one of our sh- programmes one afternoon uh, on his regular spot. And he used to wind this all up. He used to come in and go, is that your green car in the car park? And you go, uh, yes, officer. You say, hmm. And he just, he, he, you know, he was just winding you up. Anyway, he went, he was dry. And he went on the air. And I remember him saying that there was a car that was stolen. It, we, we hardly any of the information was, was like now information in those days. It was like happened last Wednesday fortnight or something, and they were looking for witnesses. You know, <laughs> the, 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 but that day he just got like on the you know on his desk at, before he come out to the radio station this stolen car report, and he gave out a description of this car. And somebody rang the radio station. Uh, remember, there were no bo- mobile phones. No. There were hardly any phone boxes. So someone had driven for miles behind this car before they found a phone box to ring up the radio station and say, well, is, is Sergeant so-and-so there? I've just seen the car. This was local radio in action, you know. And then a couple of years later, there was a load of snow and the radio station was coordinating food supplies for people who were marooned on the Gower and stuff like this. And this is real local radio. And this year, so sadly, with this COVID lark, I mean, GTFM has just gone through the roof. I mean, Mm. uh, our social media, I think, had... 
half a million hits last month wow. just on our Facebook. And that's because we're putting information on there that's just about Wales. It's, it's yeah. not what Boris is saying for England. It, it, we don't confuse people with that. We, we just say what the rules are in Wales and what the rules are in RCT and what the infection levels are in RCT and all of the information. And that's local radio to me. Uh, so I've had to go from the BBC to commercial. Commercial then has become disappointing in my view mm. so as a it's i mean it's great if you want a sort of mcdonald's music product it's very good i mean you know hearts are very well put together station from a, as a radio professional point of view i i think it's it's beautifully crafted it's just not local radio for me no. so i'm glad that we've got the opportunity in community to well frankly go back to the future so is <laughs> i've written the word local down as part of this question i'm going to take it out because you've kind of answered it but is hospital and community radio in safe hands moving forward in this new decade? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, radio has been... The end of radio has been forecast throughout my entire life. Yeah. Uh, radio and the wireless was my parents', you know, favourite medium. And then they got used to the haunted fish tank TV thing. You yeah. know, but radio was their medium. They listened to it in the war. You know, they, radio they were very, very fond of. Then television, and obviously that's caught on quite well, radio with pictures. I never thought it would catch on, but it, it sort of has. But radio has not, despite all of these inventions, radio has not gone away. And at last, somebody has developed a radio with no knobs, mm -hmm. no dial. No, you have to remember any numbers. You just say play gtfm yeah and wherever you are in the world it does i mean hey how long have we been waiting for a radio that does that yeah you know and it'll make the tea and turn on the telly and do all the other <laughs> stuff as well I do, my son's house is just like amazing you know the six-year-old tells alexa to turn on the lights or turn on the telly or open the curtains you know uh, it just frightens frightens the life out of me uh, all of that it's just fantastic and and so no i think local is is hopefully it's here to stay mm. I, I think my only regret is that we're not resourced very much i mean we have to scratch a living try and stay on the air uh, that takes a lot of i mean this year all of our traditional you know advertising most of that's dried up yeah i mean our, our advertisers up in ponty were flooded before covid started i mean they were put out of business a lot yeah, of, beginning of the uh, year this, yeah yeah so i mean it's just like a disaster year as far as advertising revenue is concerned we're not trying to make a profit i mean we're just trying to keep it going i think the fact we have to struggle to do that and spend so much of our energy doing that is is disappointing because the, the listeners love the medium i mean they just love it and of course there's something slightly familiar about the sound of gtfm the mixture of the music, the fact yeah. that you can be surprised by Nat King Cole, Let There Be Love, you know, followed by the latest record by whoever's at the top of the charts. Mm. It, it's all mixed up. And people love that. They're really surprised by it because no other radio stations do it, apart from BBC a bit. You know, long may it continue. Uh, I just hope it is, you know, safe in the hands. I'm just a bit concerned that it's under-resourced. The only people doing local radio now are people like us. That's a shame. But hospital radio, where I started, is, is real, it, real communicative local radio. I mean, there's nothing like doing a request show where you wander around the patients. Well, obviously not now, yeah. when, you, when you can. And you're collecting requests, requests from bikers, who, you know, who, who want something fairly noisy. And, and uh, dear old ladies who, in my, my day, right back when I was a kid doing this, when I was 15, you know, they wanted the sound of music. Can you play that lovely song from the sound of music? And the thing is... What I discovered from that is that people would actually listen to these things one after the other. And the biker would be listening through the sound of music yeah. and Beethoven's, you know, I don't know, Sixth Symphony, yeah. a piece of that, to get to his record by the Rolling Stones. And the little old lady would listen to the Rolling Stones. I mean, pretty <laughs> nearly deafened her, you know what I mean, in order to get to the sound of music. And because they'd all got a name check and they'd all, yeah. uh, that dear boy had come round and collected the request and... You know, there was a contact there, uh, a real contact, even, you know, in a hospital. You can well, imagine people, are, you know, they need cheering up, for heaven's sake. So you're doing a good job, just, you know, being cheerful, frankly. <laughs> Thank you. Your tenth and final choice returns us to the Seekers and uh, Shores of Avalon. It does. Well, as a Somerset boy, you know, 
uh, sort of the romantic image of, of Avalon, Camelot, you know, it's supposed to be where the Somerset levels are near Glastonbury, isn't it? You know, yeah. by myth and legend. So it's returning home in a way, I suppose. I've no great desire to do that because my friends are in Wales. I've been living here for donkey's years. I love Wales. I even support the rugby club here. So, hey, I'm, you know, past help, mm. really. <laughs> but Avalon, the image of this I love. But the thing is, Seekers, I've just rediscovered them because they split up in 1968 uh, and it shocked everybody uh, because they were huge and they'd had loads of hits and everything else and it turned out that the the lead singer judith durham had a sort of very common problem with self-image she thought she was fat she didn't think she was deserving of stardom she hadn't expected stardom she just got on a boat with the boys and came over and sang a few folk songs and then suddenly she was on the london palladium and stuff so she wasn't ready for any of that and she wanted to sing jazz which was her first love so she gave the boys six months notice which is what they'd all agreed, apparently, to start yeah. with. Just as they were about to sign their second record contract with EMI, they would have made them, you know, millionaires, probably. And she went, no, I want to leave now, boys. <laughs> and the group fell apart, and it was like... And she had no idea what she'd done at all. She has no pre appreciation of it at all, really, bless her. So the boys were devastated because she made the band, you know. She, yeah. Her harmonies, her lovely crystal clear voice was, was the sound of the Seekers. One of them went off and invented the New Seekers. Um, that was Keith Podger. He, he actually invented the group called the New Seekers and he was quite successful. He didn't sing in those, but he, he produced them. And they'd all sort of jobbed around doing stuff. The, the, the bass player of the Seekers went off to be a, a game show host. <laughs> and then he was a state governor i think or, or or certainly uh someone in the legislative part so they'd all done this stuff anyway judith durham stayed in britain married a guy they had a very happy sort of 20 25 year life until he died of motor neuron disease and not long before he did that they had a car accident and it was all in the papers over there judith durham you know because they, they they were absolute legends and they still are the seekers they were the biggest pop export ever in australia's history mm. they've got the biggest crowds there ever in in pop history i think they drew a quarter of a million people up to, to um a bowl thing near melbourne which is the biggest audience has ever had like an open air concert in 66 and like that the boys heard that she was in hospital and went round to see her and they had a chat and, and they kind of got on like they'd never broken up 25 years yeah. before. And somebody persuaded them to go to a studio and see if they could still really cut the mustard. And they sounded exactly the same. And then somebody said, why don't you do a reunion concert, just like a little concert or a tour or something? So they did a, like a 25th reunion and they hadn't sung or played together for all that time. And it went down hugely well. Now, I didn't really know that uh, because in britain we didn't really get their records they were kind of 60s band and they'd gone you know they'd split up that's all we knew but then last year a record company sent their 50th anniversary album live album to the station and said do you want to give some away and i gave one to howard our old, oldies presenter but i listened to it and i thought well these people they, they put a couple of new songs in this and i thought well they've done new songs and i found they did an album in 1997 they got back together to do, I think it was a 30th tour and then a 50th anniversary, and they called it a day after their 50th anniversary tour, which was in 2014, I think. But around the end of the 90s, the beginning of this century, they recorded a pile of new stuff, and it's brilliant. I mean, it's their, all their original magic, plus modern recording techniques, so the guitars sound better. The whole thing just sounds more polished, I suppose. Uh, well, this is one of the tracks, this track I've chosen to end with. So it's taking me back to Somerset, sort of in my mind, the shores of Avalon, but a lady in her mid-70s sounding just as good as she did when she was 19 on the London Palladium in 1966. Judith sings this song, and the, the, the harmonies join in later, the boys join in. It's just magic to me. As we draw to a close, Terry, a couple of grandchildren, uh, two sons and a couple of grandchildren, but a big blow to you uh, in early 2019 with the passing of Doreen. Radio, and in particular GTFM, is very important to you, but I guess since Doreen's death, a, a lifesaver and a godsend for you. Son and a daughter, actually. But, I uh, beg but your yes, pardon. Yes, it is. I mean, I, uh, well, it is, I suppose. Yeah, I ploughed myself a bit into it uh, as a kind of therapy, I guess. But then there's a lot to do to try and, you know, make it more viable, make it more sustainable. There's a lot of tasks to do. I, I, um, but yes, it has been, I suppose, a blessed release in a way, 
and and in in the silences, which you know are many uh, mm. around the radio noise, I've discovered YouTube, which I hadn't really <laughs> discovered before. I don't have time. So I, I've um, found the, the Seekers, all their stuff, all their videos. I found all sorts of people on YouTube. I was watching a, another favourite band of, um, of ours, Dorian and I, was America, yeah. who were produced by George Martin in the early 70s. Well, I, I found on YouTube the other night a concert they did in 2008, I think, where they just sang all their songs, and so well, so beautifully. So, uh, you know... Um, I wasn't expecting to lose. She wasn't very well. She had diabetes for years. She was very poorly, but she was a fighter. And she didn't expect to go when she went. And, and I didn't either. And it kind of, you know, it's like suspended life, really. It's kind mm. of um, all those things she didn't say. But luckily, we, we said quite a few. Yeah. So, yeah, it's different. Terry, it has been a delight walking through your career with you the last 90 minutes. Thank you so very, very much. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. On the shores of You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where local radio broadcaster and executive Terry Mann has been choosing ten of his favourite tracks. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when someone else chooses ten of their favourite songs on another edition of Music Was My First Love. The music of the